If you would, be opening your Bibles to John 4, John chapter 4. We're going to take the text of the sermon this evening from John chapter 4. We need to give just a little bit of background prior to that of the context and the setting of the chapter. Tonight's sermon I have entitled, In Truth in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. We're going to talk a little bit about worship. In the background of John chapter 4, we have the Lord going to the well, seeing this, uh, the Samarian, uh, Samaritan lady, and engaging in a conversation with her. He asks her for a drink of water. She says, you do not have anything to go down and get the water. You don't have a vessel. He continues to talk to the lady and he offers to her uh, the water of life where she'll never be thirsty again. And in that conversation, uh, Jesus asks her, verse 16 says, Go call thy husband and come hither. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you've said, you've said right. You don't have a husband. And the five other ones that you did have, they weren't your husband either. And so, this isn't... This isn't a chapter on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This was a miracle that Jesus performed, understanding all about this woman. She had never met Him. In this life, they probably had never crossed paths, but He is demonstrating His godly power to her to grab her attention. And then she tells Him, says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she makes a statement to Him in verse 20 of chapter 4. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And then he makes this statement, which is our text for this evening, verses 21 through 24. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not. What? We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now let's keep in mind as our sermon unfolds tonight. This woman made the statement, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say we ought to go to Jerusalem. Jesus said, you worship and you don't know what you worship. Her worship was not acceptable to God. For us to come to the correct understanding of what God desires in the form of worship, we need to come to the proper understanding of what He expects from us. From almost the very beginning of time, people have offered to God what they wanted Him to have instead of offering what He has commanded that He receive. It's difficult to think about it in logical terms that the the creature would demand something of the Creator. But that's what happens. That's what this woman's forefathers had been doing. They were worshiping in the mountain there in Samaria, yet... They didn't even really know what they worshipped because they weren't doing it properly. In Genesis chapter 4, we have preserved for us two brothers. 
the account of their bringing something to God in sacrifice. And of course, we understand what happened. You have the younger brother Abel who took the firstlings of his flock and he brought that to God and God accepted it. Then you have the older brother Cain who brought the produce of the ground that he had uh, over which he had labored and he, he brought that as an offering and God did not accept that. But like Cain, the world has more often than not had their worship rejected by God and they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. They worship and they don't even know what they're worshiped or the proper way in which it is to be worshiped. I think it is imperative for us to understand that God must be worshiped in the way He prescribes. If we have any hope, any chance of, of getting to heaven, anything else we offer to Him is a perversion of worship. Paul said this. Notice in Romans 1, verse 18, and then we're going to also notice verses 22 through 23. Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Well, exactly... How are people holding the truth in unrighteousness? Because it's not just toward those people who lived in Rome at Paul's time. Well, Paul answers that. He says, speaking of these people, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like to a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What's he talking about? They were worshiping something. They wanted to worship God. In their mind, whatever God was, they wanted to worship Him or it or her or or whatever they thought God was at that time. But they made idols to God and it looked like the, the other creatures that the true God of heaven had created. Birds and uh, four-footed beasts and creeping things, things of that nature. And they were worshiping the creature instead of the Creator. Paul speaking of the unrighteous offering of worship that these heathens had presented to God. And he did not accept it. This reminds me, and I know that when we think about it, we all think of very two prominent happenings in the history of Israel concerning false worship. In Exodus 32, we see Moses coming down from the mountain, and he sees that the people have fallen down before a golden calf that Aaron had created. Moses had gone up to the mountain. He'd been there for about 40 days and less than that. And the people came to Aaron and they began to murmur. And he said, where's this Moses? We're out here by ourselves. We want, we want someone to help us. We want to worship God, so make us a calf. And so they began to worship idols. 1 Kings 14, verse 16. Jeroboam, if you'll remember, the very first king of the northern divided kingdom, the northern portion of the kingdom, he didn't want the people going back down to Jerusalem. God had given him a kingdom, yet he was afraid if they went down to Jerusalem to worship him properly, that he somehow would lose the kingdom that God gave him. And so he set up a golden calf in Bethel and one in Dan and from the north to the south. And do you remember what it says of him? He made Israel to sin. How did Israel sin? By offering false worship to God. I think if true and acceptable worship is going to be offered. We have to understand a few things about it. This evening I want us to begin with understanding that there is a demand for worship. That's our first point. In all people throughout the histories of the world, there has always been an eagerness to worship. 
There hasn't been a civilization, a culture, or anything else ever uncovered by an archaeologist that they did not find in some way, in some form, that those people worshipped something. They worshipped something that they considered to be a higher being. Even those individuals who claim to have no religious affiliation, individuals who claim that they have no belief in a supernatural God, they say, I'll never worship anything, and they can't stick to what they say. It is impossible. They will worship something, even if it is themselves. Of course, that's humanism. We understand humanism to be that nothing is greater than we are. We are the totality of anything and everything. Nothing is beyond mankind ourselves. Anything that is created in this world, we did it. That's humanism. It's a doctrine that is centered on human interests, human values, a philosophy that rejects the supernatural. And it stresses an individual's dignity, worth, and capacity for self-realization through their own means, not through anything that God has offered. You know, Jude spoke to that. He spoke to humanists and humanism. Notice Jude verse 16. Humanists fit right into this statement. We might even say that humanism or humanists are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words. Now here it is, having men's persons in admiration. Because of advantage. Who does the humanist look to beyond self? No one. We are at the top of the food chain, so to speak. That's exactly what Jude's talking about. But not only do people have an eagerness to worship, they will engage in worship. We see it throughout the world. I've been to different parts of the world and I've seen idolatrous worship assemblies. I've seen Muslims gather to worship. I've seen... Hindus gather to worship and offer their their incense and, and their offerings and things of that nature. People are going to engage in worship. It's going to happen. Now, we need to understand exactly what is worship. When we talk about worship, what are we actually talking about? We are talking about someone who is attributing worth to something. We may worship a fence post. It happens throughout the world. The very thing we would put, uh, string barbed wire on, they'll put it up and make an idol out of it. The very thing that we'll use to put in the, uh, on the side of a building, we may call it a brick, they'll set that thing up and they'll worship it as a god. But it's attributing worth to something. That thing is, is full of worth. It's not worth less. That's what we mean when we talk about worship. Let's look at the idea that God's people have always had when it comes to worshiping God. The attitude, the reverence that they have always demonstrated to Him. Literally, they would bow down to the earth. The psalmist declared, Psalm 44, 25, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Literally, they would fall down, prostrate, before the very God of heaven in reverence and worship. Of course, the idea of humbling oneself 
is absolutely seen in the New Testament. This word worship indicates obeisance, to prostrate oneself or to show deep respect. That's what worship is when we think about coming together and worshiping. Have you ever sat in in an assembly of the Lord's people? Maybe you've been visiting and and you stopped in a little old congregation somewhere on the road, and and you walked out of there, and maybe one of the first thoughts in your mind was, boy, that singing was terrible. I'll have to admit, I have thought that before. And what about that is right? Nothing. Nothing. Who is worship for? Worship's for God. His worship supposed to please Rick Owens? No, I'm supposed to be involved in offering that worship, right? We have to keep in mind that we're offering honor, we're offering obeisance, we're offering deep respect, and as long as we do it the way God has asked us to do it, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. However, we have to keep in mind, just because we engage in worship, That doesn't mean it's engaged in properly, right? Scriptural worship is composed of very certain and specific rituals and rites and activities, right? In other words, there are very specific avenues of worship down which we must travel and offer to God. And there is a pattern found in the New Testament. Now, proper worship. And that goes back to this idea of wondering, well, the singing could be a little better, and we, let's, if we add a piano to it or, or something, it could make it a little better. True worship speaks to man's soul, not the flesh. We have to understand that. We might ask the question, when is one allowed or authorized to worship? We worship God every single day. We ought to worship God in some ways every single day. We worship God through prayer. We worship God through singing. We worship God through preaching or teaching, depending on the situation. Every time we sit down and open the Bible to study is not a period of worship, necessarily, right? We're engaged in a study of a a biblical passage right now. We are right now engaged in worship of God. But a Bible class may not be a worship assembly, right? But we need to be able to worship God in some way every single day. Acts 20, verse 7, the saints are commanded together on the first day of the week to break bread. We can worship every single day if we want to pray, sing, or preach. But on the first day of the week, we have two very unique exercises of worship that are prescribed. Eating the Lord's Supper, we'll do that here in a few moments for those who had not the opportunity to do it this morning. They'll also have an opportunity to give to the collection of the saints in a form of worship. We can give any amount of money anytime we want to, to the church, if we want to help the church. But as a form of worship, we do it on the first day of the week. We do it on the first day of the week. We don't pass the hat on Wednesday nights, do we? We don't come together in a gospel meeting and and pass the hat to collect money on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Why don't we do that? Could someone come up and say, you know, I think what you're doing in, in a certain area of your evangelism or your uh, benevolence program, I think that's a worthy cause. Let me give you a check for something. I want you to use it for that. Could that happen on a Wednesday night? Sure it could. But it's not an act of worship. We do an act of worship 
on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now, we have to always keep in mind that just because we're not in the collective gathering, when we offer a type of worship, it must still be done correctly. Can we sing praises of God using an instrument outside of the collective assembly? You know, that's something we need to talk about if if we have some questions or concerns about that. Let me ask you this. If we pray outside of the collective assembly, can we pray through the mother, uh, through the name of the, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus? Someone says, well, I'm, we're not in worship assembly. I can, I can, uh, sing songs of praise to God using the piano at home. Well, can I pray through the name of Mary at home? It's an act of worship, right? A wedding is not a worship assembly. But when I pray at a wedding, and, and I often, always do when I perform a wedding, do I have to pray properly? Sure I do. So I don't know what the difference is in saying that's not what this sermon is about, but that's just the thing we have to keep in mind. We have to perform our worship activities properly. But if we're going to do that, we have to understand the demand for worship. But secondly, and this is our second point, we have to understand there is a disposition in the mind of the worshiper that must be there. There must be a certain attitude, right? We have to come before the throne of God because we want to. What if the only reason we congregate is because I feel it is just simply a requirement and I have to do it? I'd rather be anywhere else. That's not really the attitude that God's looking for, is it? David exclaimed in Psalm 122 verse 1, He said, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. He looked forward to that. He wanted to go into the house of worship. He wanted to be able to do that. A true worshiper is going to have a profound gratitude toward the Father and for the wonderful grace that He's offered to us. And we'll want to make that known in our worship to Him. We're going to seek every opportunity to acknowledge our dependency on Him. The fact that our very lives are based and founded in Him. And without Him, we would have nothing at all. We would not have a world in which to live. I think we should ask ourselves the same question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits towards me? What has God ever asked for His creation? The only thing, He's asked very few things of us. He's asked us to live obediently according to His commandments and to offer proper worship. That's all He's asked. Jesus said, My commandments aren't grievous. His commandments aren't grievous. We can perform those commandments. Along with the proper attitude, I believe that the true worshiper will cultivate certain unique attributes in his and her lives. Christians have always been a people of God's own possession. Didn't Peter call us peculiar? 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Peculiar because we're different from the world. Peculiar because our worship is different from that of other churches who claim to be gods who have patterned themselves after some man or some other uh, thing. We're peculiar in our worship. The faithful will not participate in practices that are not acceptable to our God. I think that we are able to offer proper worship to God if we'll just but listen to Him. Listen to His voice. Obey His commandments. Solomon said this, Proverbs 1 verse 7. 
He said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the truth, isn't it? I think Solomon was on to something there. Why is that so important for us to understand? That we need instruction. We need guidance from God. The great prophet Jeremiah said it best when he said, Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We can't direct our own steps. We can't do it. It's not in us to direct our own steps. We have to follow God's commandments. We have to follow His direction and His instruction. When we engage in proper worship, we're going to draw closer to God. We're going to become more like Him every single day when we live the way in which He wants us to live. God will never accept worship from someone who lives in sin. Never. He is not going to do it. That is why He rejected Israel's worship. Because they had separated themselves from God because of their sins. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God is in the same place He's always been. But Israel removed themselves from the, from the presence of God through their sinful activity and He would not accept their worship. We need to keep that in mind, right? We, we place ourselves in a position to worship God properly first by obeying the gospel of Christ. We have to become New Testament Christians and then that allows us to be able to worship God properly. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. In verse 31, John records for us the statement of the man whose son was healed. This man said, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth His will, him he heareth. God doesn't hear sinners. He doesn't hear a sinner. Now, obviously, we understand God is all-knowing. God recognizes when someone prays to Him. This term or this phrase, God heareth not sinners, means God does not react or act upon that prayer. He does not accept the worship that is being offered, right? But if someone is going to be a worshiper of God and doeth His will, that's the person that God will hear. God's not going to accept worship from someone who lives in sin. We have to come out of the darkness, right? We have to come into the light through belief. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, but we have to hear the Word of God. Repenting of past sins. That's what the people asked on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Confession unto salvation, Romans uh, 10, verse 10. And baptism so that sin can be washed away, Acts twenty-two sixteen. That's what Ananias told a fasting, praying, penitent Saul of Tarsus. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And of course, living as Paul did after that, faithfully to the end, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. through 8. God will accept that person's worship. Now we've talked about the idea that there is a, there's a demand for worship. God demands worship. We've understood that 
that people are are going to worship and there has to be a disposition within that person who is offering worship. I want us to finish tonight and this is our third point. I want us to look at a few things that happen in the world today that are departures from true worship. Now remember, what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit is the disposition. Truth is the doctrine. Some congregations have introduced divided assemblies. Now, we don't hear that term very often. Now, what we may hear more often is, and you may be familiar with this, children's church. You familiar with that statement, that phrase, children's church? You go to a congregation and they may have class and And then they'll break for worship and they send the children off somewhere else with a few of the other members and they have children's church. In some congregations, and and that has snuck and found its way into the Lord's church. And in fact, some congregations will practice, and I believe which is a very blasphemous practice, they'll have junior elders and junior deacons and they'll practice that amongst these children. That's a divided assembly, okay? Uh, now, this is not a reference to being in the cry room or the training room or, or the, the nursery or something like that because we can still engage in worship. We can look through the window. We, we may have a, a, a speaker that, that brings the worship activity into that room and people can participate that way. Some congregations have a TV monitor where they can watch and listen and participate through singing and praying. We're not talking about that. We're also not talking about the Bible classes that take place prior to the corporate worship. We can have a Bible study anytime, any place. And so most congregations, and, and we included, have decided we have a Bible study before the worship assembly on Sunday morning. And we may divide up, in fact. We may send children to a, a different class and, and materials taught on their level. But that's not a worship assembly. That's simply a Bible class. We're talking about the worship assembly in which we're engaged right now. Some have argued that children's church is needed for the level of competency for the child that they cannot understand pulpit preaching. I was talking with someone the other day and I said, you know, I've never been the smartest person in the room. I'm fairly competent in some areas. I don't think my preaching has ever been complicated. But if we're going to believe that, we must take first, or we must take some liberty in assuming a few things first. If we believe that we can't have our children in the, in the corporate worship assembly, we have to first assume that God did not know what He was talking about. When the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if therefore the whole church come together into one place. God must not have known what He was talking about. How is it then, brethren, when you come together? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. God expects us to be in one group as a congregation when we come together for corporate worship. We have to assume that children were taken from the assembly during the first century. We have to make that assumption if we're saying that children cannot understand and gain anything from 
the pulpit or from collective worship. Notice Acts 20 verse 12. We recall the time when it is recorded for us that Luke recorded when Paul preached to midnight. You remember they spoke of a young man named Eutychus. At about that time, uh, sometime in the night up to the point before midnight, Eutychus was sitting in a window and he fell out because he had fallen asleep and he had, I imagine, had broken his neck or something had happened. When we look at Acts 20 verse 12, after Paul had raised the young man back to life, it says, And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. Now this phrase, young man, comes from the Greek phrase that means young boy. When we do a word study and we determine what that means. This wasn't a grown man. This was a young boy sitting in the windowsill. And he fell out and he killed himself. John mentioned three different groups in the church. First John 2, 13 through 14, he mentioned fathers, he mentioned young men, and he mentioned little children. John did not write three separate letters. There's no indication that this group of people were divided into three separate groups and read these letters individually. No indication for that whatsoever. I want us to notice what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 2 verse 12. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Where? Where are you going to declare the name? In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. That's not a divided assembly. The brethren cannot do that if they're off with the children in some other part of the building. That's a divided assembly. But there's other ways. What about deviant music? Deviant music. Instead of congregational singing... Many organizations, and it has found its way and it has sneaked right into the church of God. The church for which Christ died. Instead of scriptural music, they want to use special singing. Well, I think all singing is special to God when done properly. Now, this includes uh, maybe one person on a stage singing a solo. It may be a small group today known as praise groups, praise teams. It may be a choir that is a a, a large group. It may be that they have placed microphones in the hands of the good singers, right? Throughout the congregation, and that's who you hear. But what does God expect? God expects us to come together as a group and to sing collectively. Now, Does it sound better if Carl leads the singing than if Rick does? Amen. It does. But we can't just give Carl a microphone. Right? We can't pick out a few other people that sing well. And so that is what's heard to or in the ear of those who are worshiping. We're not concerned with that. We're concerned with offering worship to God and does He appreciate it? One who wants to worship in spirit and truth has to ask, is that acceptable? Well, we're fortunate because God has regulated our singing in worship. And He's told us a few things. I want us to notice Ephesians five eighteen through 19. Paul says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a commandment. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice he did not, or 
he wrote to the group about the group. Right? He didn't write to the church and tell them, now the, the choir, you get them off over here and you tell them, this is what I want. That's not what he did. He wrote to the group about the group. As a group of Christians, we are to sing collectively. All of us, all of us teach and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice Colossians 3.16, the sister letter to Ephesians. Paul said, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's how you're filled with the Spirit, by the way. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We show forth our gladness when we sing properly. Instrumental music, that's another perversion. That's not anywhere in the Bible is that found where that has been authorized. God is very specific about the music He will accept. Have you ever heard someone make the statement, they find out you're a member of the, uh, the church, the Lord's church, and they say, oh, you don't believe in me, you don't have music. Yes, we have music. We have music every Sunday. Every time we come together, we have music. We just do not accompany that music with the instrument. God authorized singing. Nowhere in the Bible, and this includes the Old Testament, we'll talk about that in a moment, has God ever authorized someone to use an instrument. He's never done that. He's never done that. The writer of Hebrews said singing is to be an offering of the fruit of the lips, right? Hebrews thirteen fifteen, not the fruit of an instrument. Now remember, let's go back to Genesis chapter 4. What does God do when an offering is made, when a sacrifice is made that is incorrect? He does not accept it. He does not accept it. Cain's grain sacrifice. We remember Nadab and Abihu of Leviticus chapter 10 offered strange fire to the Lord. God did not accept it. He killed both those men. Nadab and Abihu burned alive right in the presence of everyone. God says what He means and He means what He says. What about this idea that someone says, God did tell us we cannot use the instrument, so therefore I can use it. Well, I'm taking liberty with something God has not allowed me to take liberty with. In both accounts, Cain, Nadab, and Abihu, do you know what God told them? Do you know what His instructions were? He said, do this. Whatever that was within that context. With Cain, it was offer a certain sacrifice. With Nadab and Abihu, it was get your fire to a certain place. Do you know what he didn't say? At no point did he ever tell them what they couldn't do. At no point. Now, at no point did he say, Cain, you have to offer this, but you can't offer what you're growing in the ground. Or, Nadab and Abihu, get your fire from the altar, but don't get it from the campfire. Or don't get it from... He didn't do that. We know that as the law of exclusion. The writer of Hebrews in talking about Moses, uh, talking about the the uh, priesthood, he said concerning the priesthood that Jesus sprang from the tribe of Judah, of which Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Moses didn't have to say, Priests come from the tribe of Levi, but they can't come from Dan, they can't come from Benjamin, they can't come from Judah, they can't come from Manasseh or any other of the tribes of Israel. The law of exclusion. God says do something, that's what we are to do. 
What about this idea that someone says it was used in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, I think that we have to understand we do not live under the patriarchal law. We do not live under the law of Moses. So what they did under the Old Testament has no bearing on us whatsoever as far as authority goes. We don't burn incense. We don't offer animal sacrifices. We don't do a whole host of things that they did in the Old Law. But just because something was used during the Old Testament period of time does not mean God authorized it. I want us to notice, in speaking to Israel through the prophet Amos, Amos 5, uh, 21-23, God said this. This is very important. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. What's he talking about? Their worship. They're offering worship, but they're doing it incorrectly. He says, Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take you away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vials. That's an instrument. Okay? God doesn't appreciate that. God referred to that, in fact, as noise, right? Not as a sweet savor. Let's look in Amos 6, verse 5. He also said to them, Woe to them that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music, like who? David. David did that. It was David who said, 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5, Moreover, 4,000 were porters and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. God never authorized the instrument. David did that. David brought it into the assembly. It's recorded in Second Chronicles 29-25. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David. David commanded it. Did God... Allow them to do that? He did. That's God's business. He never authorized it. He said it sounded like a noise. But he also allowed them to engage in polygamy, didn't he? Solomon had, what was it, 1,000 wives? 500 concubines? Did God ever authorize that? Absolutely no. He did not authorize it. Now once men began to do it, he regulated it to help the innocent. There is no provision given in the book of Leviticus which was used to oversee the actions of the priest. For 400 years they did not use an instrument until David came along. doesn't matter what they did under the Old Testament. David brought that in. Great blessing can be a result of proper worship. We have to do it according to what God says. We need to do it in spirit and in truth. And we need to keep in mind... uh, some of the things that Solomon learned in his pursuit of happiness. He learned that the things of the world were not uh, going to bring to him what he wanted. And he said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. That's what we're made of. That's That's why we're here. And we're not here to worship in a way that makes it sound good to Rick Owens. And by the way, I think our singing was just absolutely beautiful today. I think God really appreciated that. But we did it in the correct way. We need God and we need the strength we gain from worship that we offer Him. 
God doesn't need us for anything. Didn't God say, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you? Psalm 50 verse 12. I don't need anything from you. You can't offer me anything that I need, but I expect worship. I demand it. There has to be a proper disposition. And don't deviate from it, right? That's what God expects. When we come together, worship helps to edify us, helps to bring us together. We see that in Hebrews 10, 24-25. But here's the thing. We want to conclude on this. No one can offer proper worship to God unless they're New Testament Christians. That's just the bottom line, right? We say that in love. God wants us to understand that. We saw John 9, 31. God doesn't hear.